New Day Vine, the Vine campus of New Day Community Church. Thank you again to the worship team. Let's just say that. Man, oh man, I don't know if you guys noticed, Daniel's guitar went out right at the very beginning. He just kept going strong and it was still amazing. Like, that is awesome. The only thing I can conclude is that it was the bassist. The bassist carried us. There's Alex. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, yeah. all in. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. God, I pray that you would let me speak boldly and frankly, Lord, but in a correct way as we talk, talk about this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are continuing our series on redeeming sexuality. We're doing a whole month on sex. And you might say, Anthony, why in the world would you want to talk about sex for a whole month? And that's a good question. And I'll tell you, it's because the whole world talks about sex all the time. And so the church probably should too sometimes. So we've actually decided as New Day that we are going to do a sex series at least once a year. And we are in the middle of it. So if you came and you're a visitor, lucky you. This is going to be great. This is going to be so good. But you know what? Before we get started today, uh, we picked the titles of these messages actually months and months and months ago. And the title of the message I'm going to talk about today is The Cost of Sex. Now, I'm going to change this a little bit, okay? And I'm going to talk about the cost of sex, and I'm also going to incorporate something that I really wish I would have had when I was a kid all through my life, and that is what a vision for healthy sexuality actually looks like. Like, you didn't really get that so much, you know? The world doesn't really give you that message. So I'm going to try just a little bit here at the end. We're going to tack it on at the end. I'm going to try to get you guys excited about sex in a good and godly way. But before we talk about the cost of sex outside of marriage, before we talk about the realistic news, what marriage costs inside marriage, and then we get to the vision, let me open with a little bit of Mike Whitmer. This is a book called Heaven is a Place on Earth by one of my professors. His name is Mike Whitmer, and he's awesome. And uh, this book is fantastic. I suggest buying it. But I'm going to open up with kind of his... I don't know, it's a little bit, it's almost his thesis for this book. Here we go. You ready for this? Sadly, many people who claim to follow the Christian worldview believe that the fundamental ontological distinction, a big word, thank you, Professor, lies not between God and creation, but between the physical and material and the spiritual. Now he's saying a lot of people that say they have a Christian worldview do believe that there's a divide. But they don't believe the divide is between God and everything else. They believe that the divide is between spiritual and material. A lot of us believe that. This causes a huge problem down the line. These people mistakenly equate Paul's use of the term flesh in the Bible with matter and assume that it's their physical body that holds them back in their Christian woman. If only they could rise above the animal passions of their physical nature, they think, they would be free to nurture their good souls so that they could constantly desire nothing but the higher activities of heaven or the spiritual realm. And so they believe that a tug of war exists inside themselves. He goes on to completely dismantle that worldview, and it is fantastic. This book will make you feel good about yourself and stuff. I highly suggest it. And if I'm talking about this, and somebody's like, oh my god, I need that right now, I'll let you borrow it, no biggie. I can buy it again cheap at the university bookstore, it's all good. So see me after. Stuff is good, matter's not the matter, as Mike Whitmer always says, okay? We need to start this message believing that everything God made, he made good, 
and that the devil can't create new bad stuff because the devil can't create. All the devil can do is twist God's good stuff. The devil has no stuff. Did you guys know that? He has no material of his own. All he does is twist God's good material. And he can do that really, really well. But sex is something God made, and it's something he made good. We have to start there. Does that make sense? All right. Now, the bad news. This has three parts. The bad news, the realistic news, and the good news. All right? We're starting with the bad news. And the bad news is that most of us, and I'm going to say most of the people when the Bible was written, have messed up sex. We've messed up. And having sex outside of the, the way God approves of, which is only in marriage, costs something. Now, I'm going to try to hit this briefly, but I am a preacher, so bear with me. <laughs> the first thing that it costs us, and this irritates me so much, the world talks about it all the time. Have you ever heard the phrase, a loss of innocence? And what do we mean when we say the loss of innocence? Like, when they're no longer a virgin, they've had sex, they've lost their innocence. That Let's just say irritates me because I'm being recorded. <laughs> irritates me to no end. Because innocence was not given for, to you for you to lose it. Did you know that? Innocence was given to you for you to keep it. It's not supposed to be equated with having sex. That is a lie from the devil. I just went to a pastor's conference with a guy from Texas. And every now and then he'd say, like, that is absolutely satanic. That is from the devil. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And, like, I, I'm hearing him in my head right now when I'm talking about this. It is true. Look, but it's not supposed to be that way. That when you have sex and you engage in sex God's way, it doesn't cost you innocence. But when you do it outside of God's way, and anybody who's done this has known the feeling, it's like you want to have sex and then afterwards it's like, oh, I'm not feeling so fresh. Not feeling so fresh right now. I'm on a sea of emotions and there's all kinds of stuff going on. and Just everything is not well, Right? But instead of saying we've messed up, we say we've grown up. Right? I was working at McDonald's one time, my first job, I was 14, and this young 17-year-old street guy was talking to my manager about how he's a man, and my manager was like, whatever. How do you know you're a man? My manager, by the way, tall, skinny, chain-smoking guy that already had like five heart attacks, you know, he was always angry because he had a good heart. And he's talking to this guy, he's like, what do you mean you're a man? You're 17 years old. And this kid says, I slept with my girlfriend last night, so I know I'm a man. And my boss assured him that all he proved was that all of his organs function properly. He's like, that has nothing to do with being a man. <laughs> but we don't want to say we messed up when we feel those feelings, so we say we grew up. We, we invent phrases like loss of innocence, and then we say that's just normal. You have to go through that to ensure. That is absolutely so can't. That is loud from the pit of hell. That's right, Texas pastor. You are correct. But that's the first thing it costs you if you do it not God's way. You do lose innocence. You do. It's not intended. But if you do it outside of God's plan, that happens. Second thing it costs you, a unified self. You become fractured. How do I know this? Well, we have a fancy term for it in our circle of churches. We call them soul ties. That when you engage in sex with someone, you create a bond that is not merely physical. You're physically bonded for a little bit, but then you're emotionally and psychologically bound with that person as well. When God created man in Genesis, he says that the man and the woman will become one flesh. There's an intimate bonding that happens. And, you know, that doesn't stop in Genesis. It's that way between every man and woman that has ever engaged in sex for all time. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church when he's trying to convince them why they shouldn't sleep with prostitutes. 
And yes, back in ancient Corinth, you actually had to reason through this. Like, this is why this is bad, guys. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20. Paul says, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So basically, think of a transformer or something, right? He's like, you are actually, in a spiritual sense, you've been incorporated into Jesus, right? And he says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And then he says this, Don't you know that you are not your own? You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's a genius image. He says, you've actually been brought into Christ himself. Are you going to go out and start uniting with prostitutes? That's like dragging Jesus himself into your hot mess. And then he says this, if you are actually in Christ, if you're really a Christian, if he's your Lord and Savior, he, he has charge of your body. You don't. So honor him with your bodies. But this applies to everyone, not just Christians. When we bond with someone sexually, there's a bond that's created physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And when you do that with a bunch of people, you're just ripping yourself apart. Bond and tear, and bond and tear. Look, God didn't give you innocence so that you can lose it. You're supposed to keep it. And God doesn't unite things that are supposed to be ripped apart. God unites things so they can stay united. Does that make sense? And when we do things that aren't God's way, we end up fracturing ourselves. It costs us a unified self somehow. And here's the third thing it can, it can cost you, is your freedom. Follow me here. Sex is real good. God made it that way. The devil twists it, and he makes it something that can be real destructive. I copied out a chapter from this book. It's called Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the male brain, and it is extremely detailed, and I actually printed out the article if somebody's curious and they want to borrow it, it's 30 pages, it's awesome, but it basically explains how sex works in your brain, and there are different parts of your brain that do different things. First, you see something you want, and your body releases dopamine. Your body releases dopamine to say, yes, you want that, that's good, we should repeat this behavior. It starts a habit. When you engage in sex, your body releases oxytocin and, and another chemical that I can't remember, but it's in here. And it's a bonding agent. And during the act, your, your brain is telling you, you want to be connected to this person. If you're watching pornography, it tells you, you want to be connected to this image. These are the same chemicals that make you want to fight for your, your spouse, right? Somebody messes with your wife, you want to take them out, right? You feel defensive. It can make you aggressive to protect that bond. What happens if you created that bond with an image. Whoa, you don't want to lose it. You're willing to fight for that thing, right? And over time, as you watch it more, or you engage in sex with other real people more, you are creating something called a neural pathway. And the author of this book says, just like you walk a path, and maybe you can barely see it through the grass, but you walk that same path in a forest over a hundred years, you know, and it's going to be this worn down, well-worn path. And there's going to be only one way to walk. And it says that repeated use of pornography, or really pornography specifically, but any type of sexual gratification, wears a channel in your brain. It becomes like a grand canyon-sized chasm that 
every single person of the opposite sex you're attracted to falls into. You almost can't help but think of everyone you see of the opposite sex sexually if you allow it to get a stronghold in your life. It's called a neural pathway. And here's the really insidious thing. When you're getting sexually excited, and this is mostly for men, admittedly, women, you don't get a complete pass, but this article is basically saying men specifically are wired for this addiction. But your body, as you become more and more sexually aroused, and you know, I believe sex is sacred, and I don't want to seem flippant, so I hope I don't cross that line today, so forgive me if I seem like I'm doing that, I'm not trying to. But as you become more and more sexually aroused, your brain is releasing chemicals that actually create tension, stress, anxiety. It's weird, you know? And it always becomes what the author calls a, a sexual panic right before orgasm, and an orgasm that releases a bunch of chemicals that are like opiates, they kill the stress. They make you feel fearless. These chemicals make you feel like you don't have a care in the world. So it's like the roller coaster ride that God designed our bodies to take us on of crazy excitement and an awesome release and like you're soaring, right? That sounds pretty good unless you've built some negative neural pathways. Unless the devil has hijacked your good sex drive and allowed pornography or something else to hijack your brain. Because then the neural pathways you build are going to be decidedly unhealthy. And this is why for guys to break a pornography addiction, you know, sometimes I think women are like, well, just stop. Why can't you just walk out of there? But you can't. You have to climb out. Man, that chasm that I've worn is like 2,000 feet on either side. Like, why don't you throw me a harness and some rope and we'll work on this? You know what I'm saying? So, sex outside of God's plan, in a very real way, at least mentally, can cost you your freedom. Is that heavy? It kind of is. It should be. That's enough time on that. God created something good, the devil twisted it. We're done with that. Let's talk about some realistic news. What does marriage cost? Okay, this is God's plan. This is good. Marriage is good. But you know, marriage costs you something too. But what marriage costs you is fundamentally different than what sin costs you. Sin is like a mugger that shows up, beats you up, and takes your money. Marriage costs you something, but you get something in return. When you give the cost of marriage, you are creating a context. You are creating the appropriate atmosphere for one of the most awesome things God made to reside in. If you build a nuclear reactor and you have it in your backyard, you're not going to be allowed to keep it. The government is going to come and shut you down because you have a very dangerous thing in the inappropriate context. All right? The appropriate context for a nuclear reactor is like way out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by guards. You need like a you know, key fob to get in. It's dangerous. It's powerful. We need the right context, okay? I don't go squirrel hunting with a cruise missile. <laughs> Inappropriate context. I don't think there are appropriate contexts for a cruise missile, but that thing is way too powerful. Wrong job, okay? We need the right context for this amazing gift of sex. We need it. And marriage creates that context. Does that make sense? But it costs something. The first thing it costs you is your identity of singleness. You're going to give up an identity of singleness and you're going to gain an identity of two-ness. You're going to gain an identity of two-ness. Genesis, Genesis 2, 21-25 says this. The Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping... He took one of the man's ribs, think of that more as the word sides, he took a side from man, and then he closed up the place with flesh. 
And then the Lord God made woman from the side he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then there's this great phrase in the Bible, I'm so glad it's here, that Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. That's God's plan. No shame, no loss of innocence. But here's the deal. There was a time when the literal Adam was not missing his side. He was complete. He wakes up, he's missing something. He turns around, God has turned this missing thing into a person. And he says, that's the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. That's it right there. I'm missing this stuff. And God says, turn around. Here it is. Like, what? Whoa, what did you do? Whoa, that's better than it was before. I like this. And God says, you're welcome, Adam. I do what I can. And they're completely naked, and they feel no shame. So he recognizes in that moment he's literally being united with his other half, his other side. That's why we have that phrase. Paul is reminding the Corinthians, we are not, there was never a time when we were undivided. We're unlike Adam. There was never a time we can point to before we were asleep and God removed something. So we need to remember that that drive and that longing we feel to unite with a woman is literally that drive to be united with the other part of ourselves. We're complete in oneness when we give up the identity of singleness and we accept the identity of two-ness. Is that a mystery? Yes. Love is a mystery. It is in the Bible too. Second thing you give up. Well, this is, this is interesting. You give up. It will cost you control of your own body. What? That's crazy. Well, it's kind of crazy, but it's true. Again, right into these Corinthians who were apparently really messed up. God bless them. We have to profit from that, by the way. We're glad these people were messed up. Otherwise, our Bible would be much shorter and less complete. Thank you, Corinthians. <laughs> they wrote to Paul, and they're like, Hey, Paul, we have this belief. It's good for men not to be married. People just shouldn't be having sex. And Paul's like, oh God, we've got to correct this. So in 1 Corinthians 7, 1-5, Paul addresses this issue. And he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, that it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Paul is saying, no, incorrect, have sex. We need to hear that. Okay. And then he says this, Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, that's in the Bible, and likewise the wife to her husband. Note that he obligates the husband first. Okay? Husband does not escape here. This is not a one-way street. Likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And all the men in the room probably cheered, and they're like, that's right, and they're nudging their wives, like, I told you. Give me that headache line again. But then he follows this up. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Oh. Two-way street, not a one-way street. And then he says, don't deprive one another. And if you do, it better be for a short time, for a limited duration that you've agreed on, for some good reason. Other than that, get married, make love. This is St. Paul. All right? We pretend like this isn't in the Bible, but it is. Why, why this joining? Why, this, why do I have to give up my singleness and then join with another person in tunis? Why do I have to let them have control of my own body? Well, it's even more detailed than that. It will cost you a self-centered life. 
That's the third thing. It costs you a self-centered love. You have to give that up. Because your existence from now on, creating this context of sexuality, is to have an other-centered life. And I'm not going to read the whole passage because we're getting long on time. And I want to hit the fun part. But in, in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, Paul talks about the relationship that he wants to see between husbands and wives. And he starts out with the wife. And he's like, husband, wives, you need to submit to your husbands. You need to love them because God is happy when you love them and you submit to them. Basically, you need to let them leave the house. And the husbands, I'm sure, are doing the same thing, right? Like this, right? I'm in charge around here. And then he turns it around and he says, hey, guess what, husbands? You need to sacrificially love your wife to the extent that Christ did when he died for the church. Oh. Two-way street. No exceptions. Both ways. Each person is supposed to focus entirely on the other's well-being. And he ends that section by saying, wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Love in this context, self-sacrificing love that puts them first forever. That seems demanding. I give up my identity. I give up control of my body. I have to focus on this other person's well-being and not my own. Darn right. Because I know that's coming right back the other way. Not a one-way street. And it is in this context where I trust you with me. Identity, physically, emotionally. And I, I know that you trust me with you. And I know that we're seeking each other's good for all time. Now it's safe. Now we can bring in the nuclear reactor, we can power that sucker on, and we can start making the benefits. Because this is the lie that the devil has told our culture. Sex is fundamentally bad. Do it if you have to, but it's best to avoid. And the truth of the Bible is, sex is fundamentally good. You should do it a lot. I like it, son of God. <laughs> Imagine if you will. God creates a good creation. The devil comes up into heaven and says, I know that the first thing you told them after you made them, and it's true, in Genesis 1.28, you looked at two naked people you just created and you said, be fruitful and multiply. I know why you did that. You just love sex. You can't wait for them to figure out all the nerve endings you put all over the place. and like, you're really proud of that. And God would be like, yeah, that's right. I'm really proud of that. They're going to love it. I'm going to high-five them all the time. I think if I was the devil, I would want to take over sex. I think the meanest thing the devil could possibly do, and in fact, what he has done, is if he said, you know what? I hate you, and I hate this good thing you made. I'm going to make all kinds of twisted versions of it so they can get this desire you put in their heart met in all these weird, twisted ways, apart from what you designed them to do. And they're going to want that more. And then the people that are still going to be loyal to you, that don't give in to these things, I'm still taking over sex. Because they're going to think you don't like it. Boy, that'd be mean. Wouldn't that be evil? I think that's something the evil one would do. And I think it's something he has done. But today, in the few minutes I have remaining, and I know it's just a few, we need to blow the lid off that. Can we do that? Yeah. We, need to, we need to talk about what God expects. And first of all, we need, to, we need to apologize for thinking God's approved. Because we make these neural pathways... And then we say, God, if you won't give us all these twisted things you want, you're just a sexually repressed crew. And God is like, you don't even see the awesomeness of the good thing I made. Can we look at that first, please? Yes, we'll do that. First thing, have sex was the first commandment God gave us. I just touched on this. Literally, 
the first commandment in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean? And it's not be fruitful and multiply, but try not to enjoy it too much. Remember what we read at the beginning, that sometimes we think physical things are bad and we need to shy away from it? God made physical stuff too. God's happy with me when I'm lifting heavy things and setting them back down at the gym. He likes it. God is happy when you're married and you have sex. He likes it. And if you're married in here, and I, you know, I noticed there's actually a surprising lack of married people, so I have to be careful. But you know what? This is for single people too. We need to get a hold of the vision of good sex so that the devil isn't as capable of tempting us off track with his lies and manipulations. Does that make sense? I think it does. Your brain, as I talked about earlier, is wired to want sex. And this article talks about the different chemicals that are released when we have an orgasm. And I know I'm, I'm just, this is big boy talk, that's fine. There's chemicals released that are memory chemicals. It takes a snapshot of what you're focusing on at the moment of sexual climax. Because your body is designed to store and record sexual experiences. There are chemicals released in your brain that are related to like daydreaming and hallucinations while you have sex. Why is that? It's because fantasy is God's gift to us as well. We hear a lot of bad stuff about fantasy. Like, don't let, let your fantasy life take over. Let me tell you something. If I came home from work and my wife was there and she gave me a smile and she said, I've been thinking about you all day. <laughs> and I was like, I think I know what you mean. Why don't, why don't you tell me what you were thinking? Here's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't be like, babe, it's okay. Can just here, let's let's just pray over that right now. God, just remove that sexual mindset from my wife. We just, we just ask for your forgiveness right now for thinking about the things of this world, Lord. We're gonna get over it, good promises. And bear with us in our weakness until you come again. In Jesus' name, save us from these wretched bodies. That's crazy talk. God made sex the way he did so that we could enjoy it. Yeah, he said be fruitful and multiply. Guess what? How often can that possibly happen? Like maybe once a month? Why do we make people to only want sex like once a year, like some animals? I'll tell you why. He wants us to do it all the time. In the context of marriage, you've created this context. He likes it. He's proud that he made it as good as he did. He likes the fact that it bonds two people together. He likes the fact that it, we're created to store images. He likes the fact that you might be going to sleep and nudge your spouse and say, Hey, remember that one time? A couple years ago, I was just thinking about it. I don't even know why it popped into my mind. Well, it popped into your mind because that's how God designed you. Because he likes sex, and it's good. He wants you to enjoy it. There's a book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon. How many, how many people have heard about this? Okay. For a long time, people had to allegorize this book. You know what allegory means? Like, it can't mean what it says. It has to mean something else or something deeper. It just can't mean what it says. We... we I, there are passages in that book that I could not read here and feel like I was being a propriety, you know what I mean? But it actually does mean what it says. There are some very specific do-nots in the Bible. They've got about a chapter and a half, two chapters, like, you know, a lot of it has to do with just gross stuff. You can read about it if you want, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. But, you know, in marriage... I could find two. One is, keep sex in marriage. Don't have sex with anybody else outside marriage. The other one, to be quite frank, is, guys, when that special time comes once a month, have some self-control, leave her alone. And that's it in the entire Bible. And then we have this whole book of poetry 
celebrating the erotic love between a man and a woman because God thinks it's awesome. He made it. He's proud of it. He wants us to enjoy it all we can in context. And when we do that, it is powerful. Check this out. This is Song of Solomon 4.6. You ready for this? Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. What could that possibly mean? That's, there's a length of time there until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. I mean, could that possibly be sexual imagery? Well, let's read a commentary on this by David Cusick. Hmm, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. The beloved welcome of the coming of the night after the celebration of the wedding mentioned in the previous snapshot. Their wedding night was the appropriate setting for the consummation of their deep love. Until the shadows flee away and the day breaks? Are you kidding me? Apparently it takes discipline to obey scripture. Alright? We don't start out there, but I believe in practice we can get there. Here's another one. He will fulfill her request and hence declare that until the light of dawn breaks, they will give their love to one another. Dang. Alright, so this is a little uncomfortable, is it not? That that's in the Bible. Not, and if you read the Song of Solomon, you will be shocked at the imagery and you'll think, does that mean what I think that means? I'm going to go ahead and just tell you, it probably means what you think it means. Because God made sex. He likes it a whole lot. He made us to store and record memorable images. He made us to be bonded with the person we're having sex with. And he wants your marriage to be hot. Hot. So, you know, but we need to take baby steps. In this book the, uh, that I read a passage from earlier, the conclusion of that chapter is that we need to get rid of the negative neurological pathways and we need to do all we can to make positive neurological pathways. And you might think to yourself, I don't quite follow you, Pastor Anthony. What does that mean for a married person? I just want to offer some help. But that means exactly what you think it means. You need to go home. You need to get some candles. Maybe make a margin gauge playlist when you're going to do this now, I suggest a time limit. I suggest maybe an hour. If you can do that, that's good. Yes, the word says until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, but the Lord is just going to honor your intent here, okay? He's going to work with you as you do what we can do. Thank you, Marvin. We're just redeeming stuff all over the place. Yeah, that's what that means. And we need to stop imagining that God is approved. Let's just stand up right now. This is, this is how we're going to close. I totally just did that. Absolutely. Can I get a high five in your name now? Thank you. God, we love you. God, we have sold you short. God, we have allowed the enemy to blind our eyes to some truly good things. Lord, we do ask for forgiveness where we've messed up. And we ask for a miracle where we've made negative pathways, God. We've made negative habits and we've done negative things and bad things, sinful things. We'll call them what they are. We ask you to forgive us and cleanse us like you said you would. But God, more than that, change our vision. Let us see you as you are. Let us see sex as you intended it to be. Let us pass on a vision of healthy sexuality. Let's be excited for what you intended. Give us the grace, God, to see the way you intended it to be is the best possible way, because that's what it really is. And I pray that this strange thing that the world and the enemy have done to sex, making it seem dirty or far off or 
just somehow not pleasing to you, I just pray that it stop in the name of Jesus. And I pray a generation of people that know how to be holy and know how to be sanctified and also know how to really enjoy sex inside marriage would rise up and that we blush and we grin, but we would be unapologetic about that. Thank you for your goodness, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. That's all I got. I hope it ended well. Feel free to eat some food and hang out. You're dismissed. Thanks, guys.